Shelley Schlender. This is an extended version of a story that we ran on the How on Earth Radio Science Show about pine beetles. Hi, I'm Jeff Mitten. Scott Ferenberg. You both like to study bugs. Why wouldn't anybody not like to study bugs? But you want to study the creepiest ones, like the pine beetles that have been killing our forests. We find the pine beetle to be one of the most interesting insects around. It's one of the most worrisome ones. We've had this huge epidemic that's waning right now, but your findings say that it's not gone for long. The epidemic is not gone for long. Your latest paper, Jeff Mitten and Scott Ferenberg, is indicating that with our warming climate, we're going to have a lot more of these epidemics because these beetles are breeding with a huge capacity to kill more trees. The change that's happening is the life cycle is shortening so that instead of a life cycle taking a full year, there are now two generations per year. Historically, the big wave of beetles flew the second and third week of August. Once the beetles are out, they're looking for a tree and it probably takes them about a day to find the tree that they want. They're then burrowing in for the next day or so, but then within, I would say, two or three days from getting into that tree, they're laying eggs. One year later, a full 12 months later, the eggs that were just deposited will have developed into adults. Historically, it has taken a full 12 months. Historically, these beetles laid eggs in August, and they flew out in August, so kind of a whole year. And I keep thinking of the flight of the Valkyries. <laughs> All I can do is laugh about that one. <laughs> well, Jeff Mitten, this is no laughing matter here. <laughs> um, it is kind of a creepy thing because it used to be that these beetles were once a year that they reproduced and attacked trees and killed them. Mm-hmm. And now you're saying it's twice a year. The mountain pine beetle, its development is simply driven by temperature. And the fact of the matter is that the temperatures are warming. At the mountain research station where we do our studies, if we limit our consideration to the temperatures that allow bark beetle development, we can ask ourselves, how much have those temperatures increased in the springtime over the last 40 years? And the answer is the the springtime degree days available for bark beetle development have increased 58% at the Mountain Research Station. Uh, And that has allowed the beetle to come out not uh, the last days of July, but now some are getting out in May and quite a few are getting out in June. So they're now flying, they've expanded their flight season from 50 days per year to uh, 120 one year, 132 another year. So the temperature is allowing them to be active or to, to fly longer, and the temperature is causing them to develop more quickly than they did before. This means that we have double the trouble, or is it worse than that? It's much worse than that. Historically, a female could lay, she's just attacked a tree in August, she lays about 60 eggs, and 12 months later, If everything went beautifully, all of those eggs would have survived and 60 offspring would emerge from that tree as adults. So 60 offspring in one year. Today, females are getting out in June. They're laying eggs in June and those eggs emerge from the tree as adults in August. 
60 of them. So she's had 60 offspring in two months. Each one of those 60 offspring gives her 60 grandchildren. And so in one year, that female has had 60 offspring and 3,600 grandchildren. So that's not a matter of twice as many. That's a matter of 60 times as many. Not every time will all 60 survive, but the answer is it's not twice as bad. It's exponentially worse. Well, how do you know that this second brood of beetles is actually living and making it through, and it's not just just kind of being duds that end up dying before they can do anything. Historically, the, uh, the beetles got out in August. The summer generation is getting out in August. There are some beetles that have gotten out perhaps from the last summer that have been there uh, 12 months, but most of them now have been in the bark just two months. They've gotten out in the regular time of year when bark beetles always came out. There's no reason to suspect that they're going to have any problem. These beetles that used to take a whole year to develop and become adults again, because our winters are warmer, are able to, in the springtime, be full grown and ready to mate again and ready to attack trees. So they attack the trees in the spring. Yes. And then they create a whole new generation and it's warm enough in the summer that that group that killed the trees in the spring and then laid eggs, their eggs hatch at the standard time, which is August, but then they emerge not 12 months later, but nine months later. There are now hundreds of insects that have shown responses of either shortening their generation times, like we're describing, so they're developing faster, or they come out earlier in the year, or they fly longer, or they shift onto new host plants or move up slope or up latitudes in, uh, because temperature is allowing that to happen. And so another, other examples are close relatives of the mountain pine beetle. Uh, beetles that are in the same genus include the spruce beetle. You mean that if you want to avoid the beetles and you planted spruce trees because pine beetles don't eat spruce trees, you're still in trouble? There, there is a specialist that kills spruce trees that is a close relative of the mountain pine beetle. Uh, and historically across a lot of its range, it needed two to three years to complete a generation. And most of those populations now only need one year. So this is another example where a beetle has shortened its generation time, or you know, cut it in half, similar to what we're describing for the mountain pine beetle. And that's just one dendrochthonus beetle. There are others that we could talk to if we really wanted to spread the doom and gloom in here. So uh, beetles, and, beetles that are close relatives of mountain pine beetle are doing this, and hundreds of other insects around the world are now reported to be changing their life history in response to climate change. And it's just because a lot of insects are temperature dependent when they develop. Now, this sure makes it sound like we're going to lose our evergreen forests if we have this many bugs that can be exponentially hungry attacking our trees. Uh, we won't lose our evergreen forest. Uh, in, in total, the majority of bark beetles only attack mature trees. And so there are young trees that are still going to survive this epidemic. They're under the stand. You don't see them as easily because they're crowded out by red trees right now. But they're still in there. There are some trees that are resistant. You know, the trees are not static in this. They, are, they have defenses. And so there are trees that have a high level of defense that are resisting in some locations. Do you mean that perhaps the trees will fight back and they'll be able to get tough enough against this exponential trouble that they can survive? Yes and no, let's say it that way. There's a variation on the landscape for how well defended trees are in any given forest. 
And it's just like human immune systems. Some people are resistant to some things that come through the population and other, other people are not. And in this case, trees that have a, a, a very high defensive response to bark beetles will make it through this. We've seen that in previous epidemics. Now, just so that people know, how does a tree fight back? The primary defense of conifers is resin. So when you end up, when you cut down a pine tree and you get pine pitch on your hands, you're experiencing its defensive response to injury. Uh, beetles work much slower than your chainsaw, so when they drill a hole, they get a face full of resin. So when we say that we want to pitch out a problem or pitch out the newspapers, then that may come from trees fighting back with their resin. They're, they're, they literally are pitching out the pine beetles. Yeah, I, well, I'm an entomologist, not an etymologist, but uh, I would say that that is potentially the same idea, yes. And so we say the tree is pitching resin, you know, so it's pitching resin at its problem whenever it's being attacked by bark beetles. So the pitch tubes that people see on the tree, the resin blobs, were the response of the tree trying to defend itself. And every once in a while you'll find a tree where the resin blobs look a little different. Usually they're red or pinkish, and that means the beetle got in and was chewing up sawdust and, and excreting sawdust. When it's white or candle waxy looking, it usually means the tree is winning. And so if you've seen that when you're walking around, you're seeing trees that are well defended. I hear that in Wyoming, some researchers are collecting the seeds of trees that seem to be successful in pitching out pine beetles because it might be good to grow more of them. There are certainly trees that are highly resistant mixed in with trees that are more uh, susceptible. Part of that is genetic variation within a stand. Part of it is certainly environmental. Most of the epidemics that we've seen have been kicked off by droughts, and a drought uh, stresses all of the trees. And in particular, then, they don't have enough uh, resin pressure to defend themselves. So a, uh, a particular tree under the best of conditions might be able to pitch out several hundred beetles. But under a drought condition, that very same tree might be killed by a dozen beetles. So uh, resistance and susceptibility varies with recent uh, rainfall. But then it also varies uh, as well among uh, individuals with a within a stand. And uh, Scott has, uh, uh, has discovered there's, some, there's a very large and very important pattern uh, with elevation here in the Front Range. Yeah, you, using some defensive characters, uh, we have learned that when you go above the historical range limit of the mountain pine beetle, you really only have to cross about 9,000 feet in elevation. So when you see beetles occurring above that elevation now, that is not historically normal. So they have gone upslope by thousands of feet in, the, in recent years. You mean that it used to be that the weather was so cold in the wintertime above 9,000 feet that most of the pine beetles that were hatched or, or dug into a tree that high tended to freeze and die? It, there's a, in, a, in addition to the potential of winter mortality, which is uh, in, the, in the front range of Colorado is not the clear reason why beetles didn't go to that elevation, you can just consider it, it was too cold year-round. For the beetles to be highly successful. And so when people, when uh, Forest Service entomologists, we should say, did surveys in the 1970s, they found that the upper limit of mountain pine beetle was about 2,700 meters or 9,000 feet. Okay, because you've been telling me that the temperature not only decides whether the beetles will live or die, but the warm temperatures decide whether it will grow to become an adult that can lay eggs. And you think that the temperature, the warm temperatures never got warm enough long enough for the beetles to grow at that altitude, but now they do. Yeah, and I think 
there's probably some complexity to this story, but one of the reasons why bark beetles were not at high elevations historically was that it was too cold from the perspective year-round of the beetle. Not just winter temperatures, but just total year-round temperatures were too cold for them to get their numbers up big enough to, to survive in those places. But now that beetles do go there, they're finding trees that don't have a history of defending themselves from bark beetles. And so if we had Charles Darwin with us, he would predict that high elevation trees have never been selected for defenses by beetles like other stands have. And, and, our, and our research is showing that that is, that is true. As we go upslope in elevation, that there are fewer defenses per tree. That means that these trees that are high up have never worried about beetles and a beetle bores into them and they go, whoa, whoa, what? And they don't know how to do the pitching out with resin. In a sense, what's really what's happening there is that the tree has less total resin stored and less resin delivery potential. So that when you pull out tree cores or you look at a cross section, you can characterize how much resin a tree can deliver by how many resin ducts you can count. And that's a character that people have been using for a variety of studies for years now. But when we look at them as we go up slope and elevation, we find that high elevation trees have less potential to deliver resin when beetles attack them, which make them a bit more susceptible. In decades past, the thought was that these trees were the safest from the beetles because it was too cold for the beetles to thrive. And now you're saying that they may be the most likely forest that will lose those beautiful evergreen forests that are above 9,000 feet. That is the case. If you think about the area around Dillon and Steamboat and Vale, those trees have been, those forests have been hit very hard. Those are areas that are above uh, 9,000 feet. So this is the first time that they've really experienced an epidemic. It's easy to kill those trees. I'm trying to find a bright side to this. <laughs> Here's the bright side. When early settlers first came to Colorado, there was a lot more aspen uh, than there, there are today. The forest has changed. The mountain pine beetle is going to change that back. They're certainly thinning the lodgepole pine forests, but that doesn't mean that they're going to wipe out a lodgepole pine stands. There are young trees in those stands and there's thousands and thousands of seeds in the soil. So the lodgepole pines are not gonna disappear, though they will have been thinned very substantially. Aspen grow along with them uh, and they're very good at invading new territory. So aspen are going to uh, be mixing in with uh, lodgepole, and we're going to see a lot more aspen uh, at higher elevations. All of the trees that are here will continue to be here. We're just going to have a higher proportion of aspen. And I, I, uh, I think of that as the silver lining here. Maybe the given, yellow, yellow lining. The yellow the lining. <laughs> <laughs> given, given that we can't reverse this process, we can't even stop it, uh, we might as well try to find a way to be comfortable with it. Well, you say that we can't reverse this process, but this is an unusual process. This is likely to be part of climate change that is human-caused. You're saying we can't do anything about it? That's correct. This, this process really got rolling late 1940s and the 1950s when we started putting more and more carbon dioxide in the air. The thermal blanket got warmer and warmer and warmer. It took a little while for the consequences to appear, but now we see hundreds of insects have responded. When we ask the uh, climate scientists at NCAR how quickly might this be undone, they say that uh, the inertia in the system is such that we're looking now at the next thousand years 
Is it sobering for you, though? Is this effect of the pine beetles multiplying so rapidly and breeding twice something that is more extensive than you thought it would be? Is, is this a worst-case scenario that was a bigger worst case than you had expected as you looked into it? No, I don't think it's the worst case. I see uh, the underlying problem here as being human population growth. Uh, Shelley, you can tell by looking at me that I'm a young man. And in my, in my brief uh, lifetime here on Earth, the, the population of humans has tripled. It's tripled, and I'm a young man. Uh, and so everybody wants to live in a house that is heated in the wintertime, cooled in the summertime. They want to uh, drive a car in the, in the summertime, and they want to go for vacations. And so we're using more and more resources, more and more carbon dioxide in the air. And the more people we put on Earth, the more we press the natural environments all around us. Jeff Mitten, how many kids do you have? Two. Do you go on vacations? Yes, I do. Well. As I said, we all want to go on vacations. We all want to live in heated houses. We all want to work in air-conditioned spaces. Um, the problem is that the number of people on Earth has tripled uh, in the last 65 years. Scott Farenberg, you're an even younger man than Jeff Mitten. That's a true statement. Unfortunately, I think my, my mind can take me to scenarios that would be much worse than the mountain pine beetle epidemic or bark beetle epidemics as a result of climate change. I think this is a sobering epidemic in its unprecedented nature, and it's really time for the argument over whether climate change is human-caused or whether it's even real to go away. There's, there's unequivocal evidence now. There is no disagreement in the scientific community that this is a human-caused warming event. And as a result of this, we need to get it into the public domain to become policy, to become changes in how we behave. And I think Jeff's advocating one of those, whether it be thinking in the, uh, in the future about family planning or whether it's just now at this point carbon mitigation. This is the time to wake up and do something. Even if there is a lot of inertia, let's, let's not go out just watching our forests go down. Let's try to make some changes. There are some insect or bug scientists who say that your data is not correct that you were not seeing these insects breeding twice. You were seeing some adults left over from the year before emerging early, but you're not seeing a double breeding of these insects. If we were to use the methods that most forest entomologists used, we could be open to that criticism. The unfortunate part for people who want to argue what we have found is that we have used a different set of methods that is historically normal for forest entomology in that we have gone out in the winter, at the end of the winter months, and we verify that we have pine trees available to us to study that have never been attacked by bark beetles. We search them vigorously and we find that they've never been attacked, at least within the last decades. There's no evidence of attack. No little pinholes. No pinholes, no pitch tubes, no signs of fading, nothing. You know, these are green, vigorous trees with no evidence of damage. We mark those with aluminum tags that are permanent so we can refine them. We then use some small amounts of mountain pine beetle pheromone lures to bring beetles to those trees. You bring the pine beetles to yeah. these trees? In the name of science, we bring pine beetles to these trees. But what that allows us to do is know the first exact dates that beetles visit these trees and attack them. There are no previous generations on our trees. Since once these trees are dead and overwhelmed by beetles and there's thousands of beetles under the bark, 
we start peeling away pieces of bark so we can observe the development rates and what's going on. We know when the legs, eggs were laid, we know when the adults start emerging, and we know when our next round of certified tree starts getting attacked. And so using this different set of methods, we are able to know that under the bark of the trees we're watching, that we are seeing eggs develop to adults and emerge. And that's different than just using flight traps, which is typically what entomologists use in the forest. Uh, to just catch beetles and say, we have beetles in our traps in the spring, then we wouldn't have known. But this new method allows us to say with certainty, this is what we're seeing. We can go to trees that have uh, given some evidence that a few beetles are coming out in late May or the first days of June, and we can peel the bark back from those trees. If those were simply the adults from last summer, then we would expect to see just a couple of adults and all of their progeny underneath the bark. That is not what we see. What we see is everybody underneath the bark is in advanced stages of development. They're late instar larvae, they're pupae. Now when you say instar larvae, just to back it up, so there's these eggs laid by the pine right. beetles. These are little eggs. And then when the eggs hatch, it's not like a baby chicken that hatches into a, uh, a bird. Instead, they hatch into worms that are called instar larvae. Yeah. And it takes a while for the worms to go from little to bigger to bigger to bigger, and then boom, they're an insect. It's five stages of the larvae and then they turn into a pupa. And so the pupa is kind of like um, from a caterpillar to being a butterfly. And that biggest mm -hmm. caterpillar, the biggest larvae, does this switcheroo and yes. turns into not a butterfly, but a pine beetle. The very same thing. When we look in May, because we've seen a few exit holes, we don't find one or two adults and then all of the brood underneath. We find everybody underneath getting ready to get out. And so we see tenoral adults within a few days of emerging. We see some individuals, and I've just shown you a picture taken in early June of individuals getting out, and there's uh, a whole lot of them around, six in one picture, in a, in a spot that's about the size of two postage stamps. Uh, this that is, is creepy. This is the entire brood getting ready to get out in early June. What some people are doing is they're seeing beetles fly in early June, and they presume that those are now beetles that have magically overwintered as adults, which has never been seen before. That's their presumption. But what we do is we look and we say, if that's the hypothesis, we reject that hypothesis because we see them all getting ready to get out. And uh, I invite those, the skeptics to come to our field sites and I'll show them what we see. I guess what you're saying is that what you see isn't some grandfather bugs in there that made it through the winter. Instead, what you see is different stages of the babies getting ready to be fully grown adults, and some of them developed way fast and some of them didn't. So you see all kinds of stages of how this temperature change is affecting them so that some of them are adults in May and some are not. Some are adults in May, some are adults a few days later, some are adults in early June mid-June, it's the whole brood coming out and they don't have to wait to August to do it anymore. And we've seen that again and again and again. But you have to look underneath the bark. And if you only look to see when beetles fly, you don't really know how to interpret that at all. So that's why you're looking underneath the bark. Can't sweep this one under the rug or the bark. <laughs> no, you can't. Uh, and as a matter of fact, bark beetle biologists in other places, such as Idaho uh, and 
in, uh, up in the northwest have seen beetles flying in June. We, I suspect that if they were to do what we do, they would say, oh my goodness, the brood from last summer is getting out in May and June, and they're laying eggs in May and June, and then if they watch those, they'll see the same thing that we've seen. I believe that the epidemic that is so hot up in British Columbia has the same underlying cause. I can't prove that. I haven't been up there. But we were criticized perhaps a year ago because our situation or what we have seen only occurs in one place. And now we can say, no, that's not the case. We've now looked in a total of four uh, experimental sites, and we see it in all sites. Are there any scientists up in British Columbia who are contacting you to see if they can use your methods to see if the same thing is happening up there? No, that hasn't happened. There's certainly nothing magic. All you need is a hatchet. Uh, <laughs> all you have to do is take the time to look. Uh, in British Columbia, this is an economic disaster, an unparalleled economic disaster, because the lodgepole pine forest is a major source of income. They have so much on their hands that our method is a, a bit almost too time intensive, perhaps. I don't know if Jeff would agree with that, but our method is much more time intensive than hanging a trap and just emptying a trap. And I think that's the reason why it hasn't been done widely by the Canadian Forest Service or some areas uh, in the U.S. Forest Service. It's initially very time intensive to do. Now that we have put this out there and we have some people who debate whether it's happening, I think it it's behooves people to, to use this method a little more widely. There are great scientists in the Canadian Forest Service that, that give us indications that there is very early flight in British Columbia, that there's longer than normal flights happening. And I think that we inf we're inferring from that that they have a similar, similar situation on their hands. Well, Scott Farenberg, are the forests in Europe, are the forests in South America that have pine trees in them, are they safe? They are not. There are bark beetle epidemics in Europe and Asia. In that case, they're, we're talking about spruces and firs that are being attacked. Uh, they don't have such a big pine beetle epidemic in those places. But almost everywhere that conifers occur, there are bark beetles specialized to attack them. And so we're seeing epidemics in a lot of those cases. The mountain pine beetles range stretches from northern Mexico now almost to Alaska. So it crosses three countries already. We're seeing an epidemic that spans almost that entire range. And so just here, with our own homegrown mountain pine beetle, we're already in an international problem. Beyond bark beetles, and specifically, there are a lot of insect epidemics worldwide that are clear responses to climate change. Hey, I just thought of something that might be good news. Does this mean that we'll have more songbirds because there's more bugs to uh -huh. eat? I think it means more woodpeckers, at least. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of very interesting insects that go after the, the bark beetle. We have seen, for example, red-bellied clarid, and we saw quite a pulse of those. They were so abundant that they actually outnumbered bark beetles last year in June. A number of our traps, we, uh, Scott was finding eight times as many of this predator, this red-bellied clarid, as bark beetles. But you did find more warblers or more... <laughs> Tohies. <laughs> Could you do us all a favor and the next thing you study, can you choose something where there'll be good news? <laughs> I don't think we can promise that, can we? <laughs> the best we can hope is that it'll be interesting.
Thanks for tuning in. This has been an extended version of an interview with CU scientists Scott Varenberg and Jeff Mitten about pine bark beetles. You can find out more stories like this by going to our website, howonearthradio.org. I'm Shelley Schlender. Music